Alright, so it's another episode about what's going to happen in the future. This one is with Dr. Abby Bayunimi. Um, we start talking about her work in uh, tech, and we talk about the tech industry a fair bit, and how her experience in linguistics uh, really benefits her in that field. Then we talk a little bit about academia, which she has left purposefully. And we talk about what might happen going forward into the future, which none of us really know. But the whole point of this series is that we're talking about what may happen after all of this dust settles. Hope you enjoy. We had a good time in the conversation. Um, Brief content warning. Uh, There's a brief mention of sexual assault. It's not having to do with any of us, but it's talking about how uh, chatbots don't know how to deal with it, but wanted to give you that heads up. It's like half a second. Um, And I do curse once in here. Oh, no. Oh, no. Still PG-13. All right. Thanks. And I had a visiting assistant professorship for a couple of years while I was finishing my dissertation and then after I graduated. And then I moved on to the field of user research or human factors research, and I pretty much never looked back. But I still have my love of linguistics, and so I look for ways to integrate my uh, academic training in the work that I do right now with technology and medical devices. Um, so what are some... See, here I go, not paying attention to my own plan. Uh, so <laughs> you mentioned that you, you like to try to bring your sort of academic background into the work that you do. So what are some of the ways that, you know, you actually have been able to or are able to bring your discipline, previous discipline, whatever, into the work that you do? Yeah, so a couple of different ways, actually. So there's a a couple of different angles here. So there's a lot of what's called conversational design. It's kind of a hot new thing these days. And people aren't, so a lot of people are doing it, aren't thinking about conversation through the lens of a linguist, which, you know, we kind of think the discourse analysis and conversation analysis and social linguistics, and so if you're not aware of those concepts and theories and things like that, you can um, do conversational design pretty poorly. Um, you need to understand term structure um, and pragmatic competence and socio-pragmatic competence, and so I try to inform my fellow designers who are working on that about these different concepts so that they can make a more culturally appropriate product, chatbot, or what have you. Um, the other way that uh, I bring my linguistics into work is, um, so my dissertation focused on task design and language learning, so what kind of tasks promoted better outcomes when it comes to um, production of their second language. And so task design is something that's really important in uh, user experience research or human factors research. You need to know how to design your task to elicit the kind of behavior you want to see um, and, and make sure that users are comfortable with the situation so it's realistic enough but still going to get at the things that you need them to get at. Um, the uh, ideas of like uh, cognitive load and how much you can tolerate without any kind of scaffolding or any other support uh, when it comes to reading or an interaction or something like that with the technology. Um, and then just the, the research methods that I use are essentially one-to-one with a lot of linguistics research. We do contextual inquiry, which is essentially ethnographic research. We go into someone's workplace and we watch them do their job with the technology that you're researching and when you ask those questions, you do interviewing. So people do card sorts, which I've seen in semantics research, uh, as well as technology research. So it, there's a lot of different ways that I bring it together, and it doesn't always look exactly like linguistics, but um, my my background definitely helps me do my job better. So there's two things I wanted to... Oh, oh. did. I did. I muted myself because my baby was crying. Um, oh, okay. The, there's two things I wanted to uh, point out in some things you said. You talked about um, how if you don't uh, do good conversational design, it can really, you know, 
go on. What are some examples that you might have seen either in your work or when you've seen just looking out at other types of chatbot type of things that have clearly not had someone of your caliber working with them? You know, what are yeah. some examples where it's fallen apart that you've seen? Yeah, so one of the first things that I've seen that really bothers me is related to cognitive load and knowing how much language someone can process at once. And so there's a brand that I've interacted with. I'm not going to name them because I don't want to yeah, yeah. be ashamed. Mm -hmm. But they have a, a Facebook Messenger chatbot, and when you ask this Messenger chatbot a question, it, like, bombards you with, like, paragraphs of text all at once, and it doesn't give you any time to read and process any of the paragraphs before it gives you the next one. So that's one of the things that is, is really egregious to me, is that it just had no consideration for people's cognitive load and just, like, barked a bunch of text at you without placing uh, it properly. The other kind of mistake that I see is uh, not designing for what we call edge cases or things that aren't practical. So, you know, let's say you're contacting a customer service chatbot or something and you're really upset and something went really, really poorly and the chatbot does not have any way to account for the fact that something went wrong and so it's really chipper and upbeat and uh, is really not seeming to understand your issue. So that's another uh, way that I've seen that sort of thing fail. So those are the two most egregious ones that I can think about. There's, there's, there's um, a couple of apps that I use that are like mood tracking apps, you know, um, right. and I have one that sends me a reminder, probably just did every night around nine o'clock, and it wants to check in with me, right? And I've used a couple of other ones, um, and I tend to move on from them when they aren't doing well with me, but I've liked this one because I don't, I'm sure you did not work with them yourself, but... Like, it seems like they had people in there who were able to figure out how to make them sound a lot more like some version of a person you might want to actually talk to because they aren't, because, you know, it's a mood tracking app and it asks you how you're feeling. And if you're, if you're not feeling great, uh, some apps don't respond correctly. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I feel like shit super. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, or they give you like, some cliched aphorism as a response yeah, to you right. feeling bad. And yeah. this one has done that before, but then you, it gives you, it asks you, what did you think when I did that or something yeah. like that? And I'm like, don't do that. And, yeah. and it's like, okay, you know, because some people want that, but it, it, some, you know. Yeah, some people do. So that was uh, one of my biggest concerns. I actually participated in a doctoral student's research a few weeks ago, and they were looking at what people thought of um, the counseling apps or mental health apps. That's what and it was. Sorry. Yeah, so we were kind of talking about that, and um, I was like, I just, you know, I don't know that these things are appropriate for people who have serious mental health issues, like if you have complex PTSD or if you have generalized anxiety disorder, like really bad, and you are currently without a, a physician or a therapist to monitor you, I don't know that those things aren't harmful because if it's just like spewing trite BS at you when you're like in a really bad place, you know, it just seems like it could do more harm than good. Yeah, um, I guess I'm just revealing things here, but uh, I found that it was much more useful for me when I was actually seeing somebody, um, and it was just sort of like a like a like a like frosting. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, right. You know, um, and then so you were getting the actual therapy that you were needing, right. and I, I'll be transparent too. I see a therapist too, and then but all I had was an app that was like, you know, oh, you're really depressed, go for a walk. I'd be like, <laughs> well, f you, app, you know, like I don't have the support from an actual person who can give me the kind of feedback and tools that I need to feel better. Yeah, I um, I don't, not for any like serious reason, but like. You know, I, I, I wound down my sessions after after a good, you know, a good while, and I still use the app now because I'm in a much more stable place. And the app, right. for like for like the for those last ten percent, 
it's you know of of whatever, then it, it, it sort of it's okay. But if I'm yeah. if, if things are really bad on a given day, the app is not it's not going to be <laughs> like I'm just yeah. like nine o'clock comes and I'm like. Oh, <laughs> the other really bad thing that I was, I'm remembering, so I'm working on a book manuscript that's essentially sociolinguistics for tech people so that they stop doing this kind of thing. Um, I believe it was Alexa and Siri. Uh, they both, several years ago, if someone were to say to one of those voice assistants, like, I've been raped, or something like that, like, the one, um, it would, they were completely completely inappropriate responses that the um, voice assistants would give. It would be like, I'm sorry, I don't know what that means. Or like, I can't help you. And you know, it's I don't mean like, to laugh. It's just so... No, it's, it's, it's funny because it's so bad, right? It is so very bad. If you have someone who is desperate for help and they go to, they're like, I don't know who to talk to, so I'm going to see what my phone says. And it's like completely dismissing the pain that that person is feeling at that moment. And then... There was another, uh, a few articles last year, the year before, on how um, both Siri and Alexa were responding to sexist and misogynist comments with, like, oh, like, fully minimizing, like, oh, <laughs> that's so cute, I'm not, you know, it's just, like, it was just really bad, and then um, Alexa's team got a lot of heat for that, and they did end up changing it to make, you know, there was headlines that Alexa's now a feminist, and it's like, well, no, it's just, <laughs> non-feminist, it's just not letting men abuse her, right? So, so yeah, that's, that's kind of why I'm writing this. <laughs> and why do you think, I mean, aside from people simply not having linguistic training, but it's not just linguistic training, right? Like, you know, right. you can obviously be a trained linguist and have the same problems. Uh, yes. It's just that you know better about how the language works. But, mm-hmm. um, do you think, I mean, I feel like I'm setting myself up for an easy answer here, but, you know, do you, do you think it's really just people are not getting this sort of, I don't want to use the word cultural, but uh, anti-oppressive uh, literacy uh, in their in their schooling or in their lives that leads it to that they would not even notice such a thing? So I think there's a couple of answers to this question. I, I think there's a situation going on here. Number one is that a lot of the companies that hire designers or developers to work on these things, a lot of those people are young white men. Um, a lot of them come from STEM degrees where they're discouraged from taking liberal arts courses. Um, you know, we have that discourse in the United States of going to college for technical training instead of, you know, for knowledge and societal understanding is, you know, college is for a job, right? Which is for a job at really college, otherwise it's not worth money. Um, and then, so you have this group of people who don't have that base knowledge because they weren't encouraged to take these humanities courses, these social science courses, and they just tend to hang around people just like themselves. So these teams are predominantly white and male and hetero, and so you don't get someone in your meetings when they're like, yeah, this is a great idea. This is how we should design this. You don't have anybody in your like, hey, you know, we might want to think about what happens if someone says this thing to our voice assistant. And I'm not picking on any one of them in particular, but that's kind of the tendency, right? Or you have a stakeholder higher up in the organization who's like, well, we need to get this product to market, and we're not going to bother with the edge cases right now because really it's not a big deal. I mean, who cares? And again, people in these positions of power tend to be white and male and often hetero. And so, again, you have this myopic view of what society is like and what people deal with on a daily basis and what's a big deal and what's not. So you have, like, a lot of different factors that go into why these things are so bad. I am... Um... It reminds me of the discourse, <clears throat> the discourse around uh, you know to disrupt, as they say. Yeah. yeah. And uh, what I have found, and you know more about it than I do, but I doubt that you found different things. Is that generally speaking, nothing is really being disrupted. It's just younger white men 
uh, <laughs> that, are, that are good. I mean, you know, I suppose it is a transfer of wealth from older white men to younger white men. But yeah, and then when they say we're disrupting whatever industry, it's like, okay, you invented taxis. It's like, oh, we're disrupting the transportation industry where we have people who can, you know, make extra money by driving other people around. It's like you just invented taxis. Have that. Or like, what if we have a van that drives to different parts of the city and picks people up and they all split the cost of the ride? It's like you just invented a bus. <laughs> Or a dollar van, depending on where you are. They yeah, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and generally speaking, when they disrupt something, they're like, what if we did the same thing, but we paid people less? And didn't give them any benefits, <laughs> and didn't allow them to organize, and we put all the costs on them so that it cost us less money. It's just yeah. like, wow, amazing. Here's $3 billion. Um, yeah. And I saw, I got an email... You know, I don't know how I got on this listserv. You know, you click, you, you click on something. And I got an email from, like, something that said, like, venture capitalists are struggling during coronavirus. I'm like, well, one would think that they should not be doing things, right? Like, could they, they could just take a moment. Like, just a moment. Like, just a moment. Like, they don't have, they, you don't have to do any of that stuff, right? You could just give money to things that need it. You don't need yep. to be doing any of that right now. Like you just don't need it. It's not necessary. Yep. Um, but they're like, well, it's not actually true of sharks, but it's the cliche of shark that if they stop swimming, they'll die, right? You know. Yep. So, um, and here I have gotten into none of the things I said I was going to get into. <laughs> um, just, okay. which is literally none of them. Um, so one of the things you, you mentioned, mentioned that you wrote about. Um, on Medium, I guess it's a year and a half ago now, um, was about conferences, was we talking about exposure and, you know, diversity and that sort of thing. Um, and, well, if you, I could summarize the article, but if you want to summarize your main point there, um, because I think it's really relevant now and going forward and in talking about academia in general. So, so I, and I think I sent this to the article too, I wrote it kind of out of frustration after getting at another conference reaction in the industry. And what I kept seeing, I was looking at these different conferences, um, culture programs and uh, finance and all that stuff, as I was searching for conferences that looked like they had a great voting conference and, you know, they had interesting people and themes that I would like to part of and I was noticing it was all the same people at all of these different conferences and it wasn't the same people it was people from the same companies and um, it's like the refrain is oh we want to be diverse and we want to have unheard voices and we want new people and fresh faces and then they just seem to pick like maybe one or two people that no one would and the rest of them are all famous people in the industry. And it's it's really disheartening because like it's like that um you, you talk the talk, you don't walk the walk, right? And I know it's a balance between, you know, the tickets for these conferences are just astronomically priced. Like you can be at like a thousand or two thousand for just entrance for a conference like this. And so I know that they have to um pay for their sponsor or pay for their um their venues and, you know, the catering and all that stuff and swag and this and that. Um, so they want to make sure that they get enough ticket sales to account for all of those expenses. But at the same time, you can't be saying you want marginalized voices when you only pick one or two people that have not had the opportunity to present at a conference before. Like, it was just really frustrating to me. And I'll give you an example of why I think that my idea was validated for that or my my um, theory about that is validated is that uh, I got into a conference and the people were wonderful. They were just really great. They were just really talked to the walk, talk to talk, all of that. They're just super inclusive, really kind. They paid for everybody's airfare and their hotel and their flights and they just really did a great job. Um, but at the time, I had a book contract with a very big industry publisher 
And as soon as I lost that contract, I stopped getting accepted in the conferences. So I'm an independent. I don't have a big tech company name behind my name. And it was just like, this is, this is super blatant, right? Like, I was good enough to speak at your conference when I had a book contract, but not anymore now that I don't have it. I have a lot of thoughts about conferences. Yeah. I do think that their academia have a lot of problems, but I think that the way they go about selecting their speakers is better than the way tech conferences do it because it's completely know who the person is. I mean there's just no blinding of anything and it's like, oh this person is a big name and they will draw crowds you pick them. I mean I've been in the selection process and I've seen that happen. I've been on a conference uh, panel where committee or an yeah. for a tech conference, yeah. So like I've seen it happen. Go oh, this person is gonna draw people in their group. So, so you you talk about um, concept of exposure being sort of like balanced against um, actual diversity and inclusion where mm -hmm. they say that people need exposure to get to certain places, but who are the type of people who can afford to do the things that are necessary to get exposure. Yeah, so that's the other thing that I've seen in tech conferences, too. It's like, have this prestigious conference, and let's say perhaps you do get accepted. Um, a lot of the time, you have to pay your own way, right? So you have to pay your phone ticket, you have to pay for, well, sometimes you have to pay your entrance fee. Oftentimes, they will at least give you a ticket. If they don't, that's just, like, really bad, and you couldn't apply to speak with. But... Um, you have to pay for all your meals, your hotel, your flight, possibly a ticket, an entrance ticket, you know, your speaker, and it's just, yeah, like, if you don't have any money, if you're just starting out, if you're, you know, an independent freelancer just getting started, just out of college, you are, you know, first-generation college student, anything that, that indicates you don't have the kind of, like, cloud of receipts or, or connections to be able to rustle up the money and get into a conference that will pay for all of that. It's just it, like, it's a huge barrier for people. It keeps you out. Like, I'm an independent. I don't have a lot of money. I still have to get out of grad school, right? I can't afford to fund my own way to a conference, which is why I was doing the research on which conferences would be submitting to because they pay their speakers. The, um, I think about, because I, I worked in a nonprofit before, technically I still work for a nonprofit, but a more traditional nonprofit um, before where I work now. And um, I worked there for a while, and um, there was there was this idea that it was diverse, like it was it was it was nominally diverse working there, you know. And I know it's not the same world as tech. But I'm just talking about the, you know, who can afford to do these sort of things type of thing. And, like, we live in New York, right? And this is not a cheap place to, to live. Um, <laughs> and they were not paying well. No, but, nonprofits don't. Right. And the entry-level jobs, you know, still required this degree and that degree and this degree and that degree, right? So just, so you, you know, just to get in the door, just to answer the phone, and I'm not dismissing people who answer the phone, I'm just saying that's how you would mm -hmm. start working there. Um, you had to have all these degrees. And uh, and then they would pay you some pittance. They give you benefits, but, you know, they, they, they give you some pittance. And um, I remember one lady who was up for one of the jobs that I was involved in hiring for, um, she was not living in New York at the time, and she came to New York, actually, because she had family there. She came, she interviewed, and she said, well, actually, I have a job offer wherever she's from. And, you know, so it was more money, and we were like, all right, well. Um, and she, our my boss was like, look, we just need to offer her a chance to come here, and she'll just get a chance to live in New York. And I'm just like, look, look. <laughs> I love New York. No. I love New York, but like you're telling her she's gonna come to New York and make twenty thousand dollars less, and 
you have to pay price to live in New York because eat. yeah exactly right like I am sure that that woman I don't know what's going on but I'm sure she has a lot more money now than she would have had if she'd been there just what to be breathing the air here or something like that mm-hmm. um, oh yeah credentialism is a thing too man it's so insulting that you need to have like all these degrees to get an entry level job it's ridiculous right my spouse he uh, does not have a college degree but he has close to 20 years experience and um, IT support and all that stuff he couldn't even get an interview years when he was applying for jobs. He was so good at his job. And he didn't have a bachelor's degree, so they automatically wrote him off. Yeah, my, um, I have a relative in the exact same position. Uh, I mean, not right now, but, like, she eventually went back and just, like, like finished her degree at some much later age um, so that she just, she was just so tired of dealing with his numbers, you know. Um, yeah. And, and the only, he actually did get another job, but the, and the only reason he did is that he um, knew someone who already worked there, and she went to that one and was like, you know, I know he doesn't have all of your education requirements, but he's good. I've known him for how many years he's excellent. And so that was, that's another way that credentials come to people out. You don't have those networking connections. You don't get that kind of opportunity to get in front of somebody that has someone to go that route. And so that's another thing that people from marginalized communities don't have. Like, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, um, I graduate college and and um, I'm looking for work, you know, whatever, 13 years ago. And uh, I was in a position financially, not me personally, but like I live with my parents. And I was in a position where I could try some things if that's what I wanted to do. I didn't end up doing that. I left the country. But, uh, like, I was in a position financially where I could have tried to do that sort of nonprofit thing if that had been what I wanted to do at the time. And I think about how I was definitely, aside from the, of course, janitorial and, like, cooking staff, aside from them, I was definitely the only black person above the entry level at that place. And there were more white women named Lauren than there were black people altogether. <laughs> it's not even a joke. <laughs> no, I know. I'm laughing because I, I've seen that work place. Yeah. Uh, they were all very nice, but they, they were all like between like certain age range and, you know, they were very similar and, and like, they all had the same name. Um, no, one was Lauren. But, um, oh, <laughs> yeah, very that's, different. That's diversity. That's diversity. Uh-huh. Um, and it, it really creates a problem because you think, not just, you know, any, any of these industries, because I want to pivot and talk a little bit about academia. Um, yeah. You talk, you know, the conferences are better in that sense that they do nominally, or at least originally, have the idea at these conferences not just to make money because they are covering fees, but to advance knowledge, whatever that means. Um, but they are, you know, people do there and they go and they present their work that they've been working on for a really long time. And there, there is the opportunity for really valuable connection, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, there's, there are valuable things at these conferences. However... Sure. They still cost a lot of money, you know. Yeah. And oh well, yeah. And like, they, let me just be clear that the selection process is the thing that I was saying is, is kind of good. Yeah. It's not the rest of it because there's so much snobbery where you know senior academics look at your badge and you don't have an affiliation and respect and turn and walk away from you. Um, you know, grad students with like one person in their audience and that that. Know, also very sad and the fact that that students don't often in early career academics often don't have enough money or institutional funding to go to conferences and they talk they're doing all of this out of pocket always in an expensive city and you know I remember when I was in grad school I felt lucky if I got like a $500 stipend to go to a conference I was like score that's a lot of money but I was still paying you know how much for my hotel and how much for the red light and the food and all that. It was just like it wasn't even half of what I had to spend out of my 
Yeah, I only went to AERA last year because it was in Toronto and it's not very far from New York. Um, and I wasn't going to go this year because I had a baby. Well, life did, obviously. Um, and then, of course, it didn't happen. But, like, because uh, it was, I was like, I'm not going to San Francisco, man. <laughs> like, that is, <laughs> that's really far and really expensive. Like, they paid, my school paid for me to, they paid the entrance fee. But it's like, that's the least of the things. Like, right. <laughs> buy my plane ticket. Exactly. Like, you know, buy, put me up in a hotel or something. Like, my, my entrance fee. Oh, thanks. You gave me $300. Um, like, I'm not going to say no, but... Um, right, but, like, that's not enough. <laughs> you know, um, and, they, and they presented, like, we have bestowed this gift upon you. Um, yeah. This great honor. Please, sir, may I have another? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, you know... The academic job market is like if you so I I was I'm only in my second year in my doctorate and so um, last year I was in my first year because that's how numbers work Justin um, <laughs> and uh, it means that I wasn't even thinking about any kind of job thing it was my first year I'm just sort of going and I it was really because I was in my first year that I wanted to go because I wasn't trying to present there last year. Um, I did present at small, I presented at other conferences, but I, last year I just wanted to go soak it up, whatever. And also I didn't feel any pressure because I wasn't like trying to get in someone's good graces or, you know, like whatever. I met some of the academics who, um, whose work I'd read and, and found interesting and that was cool. But I wasn't thinking like, and now I got to find my way to a job after this or something. But like, if you are in that position, like, those things are stressful. Like, yep. you are there, like, fighting for your life. And you can't, yeah. you can't not go to one. Like, as, as much as people are saying, you know, it does, it, of course it's made a lot of sense to cancel all the things this year. But, like, if I, what if I just finished my dissertation? And now I'm, 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 I'm looking for these jobs. I don't know what. And then now you see all these schools have hiring freezes. Which makes sense, but also like, what do you do if you're that person? Yeah. It was already impossible to get a job, and now, yeah. the, like, before the Extra jobs, impossible. right? Before the jobs didn't exist, quote unquote. The jobs existed; they were just hard to get. Now they just they're leave. also a shitty part-time admin job. Exactly, right. it's like you can get a job, you yeah. just can't get a productive, life-sustaining keep the lights on job, you know. Right. Or one that lasts beyond a year or two. Right. You know, one that one one that you can settle into or anything like that and makes you feel secure. All of the things that you're supposed to get out of your job, you know? Um yeah. and so now we have this you know, endless ongoing situation and you know, regardless of what actually happens with that the whole way academia is going to go forward is, is, you know, there's obviously, aside from the public health issues, there's, you know, severe worries that some schools are going to, like, if they lost a bunch of money, are going to have to close or something like that. Um, and then there's the curious thing where some schools, if things don't seem to have been that affected and that the students actually don't perform that much worse online. You know, there's going to be... going to go all online. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of pressure for that and they're going to work with those companies. You know, the 2U and stuff like that. Um, and they're going to... You know, so there's going to be a lot of things. What do you think... I'm not even talking about the public health stuff because nobody knows what's going to happen with that aside from bad things. But uh, what do you think is going to happen you know, with the way that these things are going to develop in the future, whether it's in two, six, or 18 months. I think that the rich schools will still be rich and they'll be fine. And the ones that claim to have prestige, like your MIT, your Harvard, your Berkeley, all of those IVs and public IVs still just continue to function the way they have IVs because they have prestige and they can do whatever they want because people want that degree from that IVB. And they have tons of money, so they can, you know, they can get their pockets paid. Um, I think that smaller schools are, like you said, at a, a risk of 
the administrative quality of the commission, if they need state funding, whatever the case may be, I think that, that is a very real concern. I also think it's a very real concern um, that schools, that administrators, not faculty, administrators can say, hey, look, we can save so much money, everything is okay when it was online, and we can lay off a bunch of our adjuncts and you know, just overload our and your faculty with online courses to save them. And then the students are going to be the ones that suffer because, you know, there are some subjects that you just can't hold an eye on only online teaching. And it's really hard to do well. Um, and I just, I think that that experience college is going to suffer if everything's just online. Look, I've been a remote worker for years, um, and I still see, I like what I do, I like working but I see the value in face-to-face classes. You can make friends, sometimes they're for life. Um, you just get that, it's a whole different experience being face-to-face in a classroom versus being online. And, you know, sometimes you need an online class, and sometimes face-to-face is much better pedagogically. And, and, but let me be clear, not everybody who teaches face-to-face is going to bat people, though. So I have these interesting experiences with face-to-face versus online. You know, I went to college face-to-face, like, you know, this was in the mid-2000s. It wasn't like all that online school yet. And so that was how it was. I went to an IV, and um, the things that were good about it were good about it, the things that were bad about it were bad about it, but I didn't even think about going to school online at that time, you know. Um, but then I went to South Korea for two years to teach English, and because I am, you know, a language teacher by trade, although it's not what I do from day to day right now, and I realized I didn't know what I was doing. So unlike a lot of people who just pop overseas and just stay there, I said, I, I, well, I'm getting a degree. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing, and I would like to be good at this. <laughs> um, so I decided to apply to a program that I had done scant research on, <laughs> and I got in, and then it turns out it was online. <laughs> I was like, oh. Well, I, they weren't scanning me. This was my fault. Um, <laughs> but I found out in the in, in an in-person interview because it was the new school, and I, I live in New York, so I just figured, oh, okay, well, the new school, I'll go there, sure. It, it's a well-regarded, it's a very good program. The reason the program is online is because they were marketing it to people who were doing what I was doing, which is teaching overseas. Okay. So, so it was like asynchronous. I mean, you there were parts that were synchronous but it was mostly asynchronous because people were different time zones. And that way they actually attracted some staff who were really like luminaries in the language teaching field who just were teaching around the world and would pop in and teach classes. And there was a value to that because I'm, I was underemployed in grad school and I had lots of time. <laughs> so I did things very quickly. Um, and uh, that so that was that. And, and I went into to grad schools thinking what you were just mentioning is that both of my parents went to professional school and both of them, a lot of their best friends were from school or business school or whatever. And, you know, the sad little boy in me wanted to have some, like, ah, the people that I got my master's with. I shall always remember them. And then it was online and I met them like once. Um, (laughs) The funny thing is we all became friends at the end because even though we all different parts of the country, and the world, they all came in for graduation and then we all became friends at that point. But like, then it was over. Okay. Um, yeah. So then when I said, all right, I get a doctorate, I'm not going to school online. Not. <laughs> not doing it. I mean, like, there were, in any program now, there's going to be a component online and Blackboard is part of it. Right? And if there was, like we saw often the professors out that, you know, would told us they're going to be a conference, like, one week would be online. That was fine okay. with me. But I don't want to take any like, fully online classes anymore because I was like, but I'm not going to have any friends. Um, <laughs> and here we are now, right? But um, I know now that like they are very, they're related. They are related. I don't know what the correlation is, but they are very different skill sets to mm-hmm. design, design and run versus doing the same person. Oh yeah, and I've been on both sides of distance learning. For undergrad, I did 
distance learning, which is not online. It's not online. I did worksheets and mailed them back. I am not a young person. Um, so I did that, and then I also did some online courses um, in my in grad school, too. Uh, I remember what they were. It was so long ago, and I just erased that. But there was, um, I did at least one online course I did. Um, and then I actually got to teach fully online uh, a couple of summers. At least one, I taught Spanish online. Dude, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, it, it is definitely two different skill sets because I think teaching my face-to-face -face Spanish classes and linguistics classes too, you can read your room. You can see how your students are feeling, whether or not they're you know, doing well with material or if you need to like, back up a little bit and explain things a little bit more. Whereas online, it's like, it's really hard to get people to be honest with you about how they're doing and it's hard to teach your, your students and it's hard to um, set things up in a way that's equitable because not everybody has the same access to technology, whereas if everybody sits in a room face to face, so they're kind of all in the same playing field, right? Um, but and then there, I had students that were, they were like, oh, I'm just going to take this Spanish class online, so it's super easy. Uh, I'll just go to the A, I'm very meaningful, but the way we had the course set up, it was really a lot of work because there was no face to face performing. Um, it was 100% online, it was uh, mostly asynchronous. We had recorded lectures that they would view on their own time and submit their assignments, and you know, we could ask questions, we could have to do office hours. Um, and it's just, you know, some people just really thrived on it, and they did all their assignments, and they did a great job, and there were some people just like, didn't catch up, they got behind, um, they didn't understand the technology, they didn't have literacy, they thought it was just really vague, got really frustrated. So, I mean, yeah, they're, they're very different beasts, I think. There are some similarities, but I think fundamentally people need to understand the skills that needed to be behind learning I think that there's a I don't really know what's going to happen with all these things like what you said I think is true is that and I mean this is going to accelerate a boulder that's already rolling down a mountain right mm -hmm. um, and I don't know because eventually the boat like it, 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 it's gonna hit a wall, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> something is going to give. Things are just slowly falling apart. This is just like we're skipping several chapters now because of this nonsense, right? So like at some point, you know, I don't know if it becomes some sort of like literal revolution or something like the fact that college costs that much and you know people you know when they say the college is for job training and it sort of reinforces itself because if it costs less then maybe you don't necessarily have to get the high paying job afterwards <laughs> like you know it just yeah. you know it's, these things are all tied together um, and I think sometimes we, and I don't mean me and you, but people make a mistake and they focus on one aspect of this. Like, but not all of these things are broken. Um, and oh, yeah, so this reminds me a lot of um, the direction you're going. This reminds me a lot of how in technology there's all these boot camps popping up because undergraduate degrees are expensive. And, you know, that's another reason why some of these technology products suck is because people are like, I don't need to go to college, it's $50,000 a year. I could spend twelve thousand dollars to get three months and know how to write code or whatever. Um, and so you don't get that well-rounded education because they're like, I don't see the point of spending four years on something that doesn't apply to the thing I want to do, which ultimately write code and develop um, software. Right? So it's you're right. We're kind of reaching a tipping point, but we have all these other things that we're pointing this direction in the first place. And the boot camps are one of the big ones. Um, I'm not, I'm not, that's not my area of expertise. Um, I think that Dr. Tessie McMillan-Potomus is uh, someone I would point to instead. She wrote lower ed. 
which is about for-profit higher education. And the, the boot camps kind of tie into this, but yeah. Oh, I, I know who you're talking I know her. I mean, I don't yeah. know her. I know who she is. You know of her, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, let me tell you, I worked at a for-profit school for a year and a half. Um, and it wasn't a tech school, but uh, every, every, every single thing that people think about those schools is true. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it was just, at first, I just needed a job. And then later, I, I saw what they were doing to their students. And it was just what the phrase that I can remember from the literature, which isn't about for-profit colleges, but it's about the way marginalized students are treated in general in education is spirit murder, right? The way that the students were treated there was just like, they weren't like being beaten or anything like that. <laughs> it was just like... No, I know what you mean. Um, yeah. Just being beaten down. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only thing they ever left those that school with was just a bunch of debt. Like, they had a and they just make up these degrees. They had a degree in Homeland Security. What does that mean? <laughs> I, I don't I don't know. See, I think these boot camps are a little bit better in that regard because you get an actual certificate in the thing you want to do that is actually thing that people for. Yeah, data science, um, you know. You know so. Right. But let me tell you, there is this, um, there is one boot camp that I'm aware of. I'm not going to name them. But they're like, you're super into diversity and inclusion. They're is like $12,000 and they're like so in order to encourage more diversity body we're going to offer a $500 scholarship to like people of color women and I'm like you're going to give them $5,000 or $500 when you're charging them $12,000 like what what on earth do you think that's going to do for someone $500 like (laughs) That reminds me of how I, I was one of the national, the, you know, the National Merit Scholarship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But up until a few years ago, if you're black, you, you, you received the National Achievement Scholarship for Negro students. Um, and so they, there's a, yeah, you can see why they stopped calling it that. Um, but <laughs> but uh, even in so this is like 2003. I got that scholarship. It was like $2,500. I was like, thanks. Um, <laughs> that like, will buy my books for one semester. Cool. I was like, yeah, you really, you really helped me out with my, with my Princeton tuition. Um, <laughs> but so it's just like, you know, I don't. I think that. There is so much systemic change that needs to occur for anyone to make any real claims at inclusion. Because, I mean, even at this point, like, diversity itself is, like, if you don't give you any power, then having a whole bunch of people who look different doesn't really mean anything if they don't have any institutional sway. Exactly. Um, Exactly. That's why there's a lot of people screaming really loudly for in the tech industry. It's not enough to have an engineer team that is, you know, diverse. You need to have your C-suite be diverse, too. Those are the people who are you directly, genetically. Those people also need to reflect the population instead of just your lowest-level individual contributing teams. Because they don't have any power, you know? If someone who's an intern who is maybe, like, a black woman, she she sees something that's super um, egregious with something you're trying to develop, and you think she has the power to, to go up to the director be like, hey, I don't think we should be developing this. No. <laughs> because she doesn't have any power on that team. She's an intern and a woman and black. And no one wants to hear anything from her. Yeah, I, um, all I know is I worked at that nonprofit and I, that nonprofit was part of a consortium of nonprofits. And so they had a larger umbrella organization. And um, if you looked at the the staff of these many organizations, 
the organizations that were more like the one where I worked, which were in nicer neighborhoods and very nice buildings. Um, all of the leadership just magically was white, just somehow. I don't know how that happened. And then you had some nonprofits that were really doing the stuff. You know, they were doing the work and they were of all different backgrounds and everything like that. Um, all I know is people, there's just, and I want to sort of use this to wrap up, but like there's little things I think that can be done that people don't realize are not making people comfortable. And I don't expect that this is unintentional. But like one of the things that at that nonprofit, for example, if you get off that was the sixth floor building. So if you get off on the sixth floor, which is the top floor and where the administration worked and where I worked, even though I wasn't in administration, um, there's the elevator, and then there was just a big long line of the pictures of all of the board chairmen. It shows just this big long line of white guys. There was a woman in there, um, <laughs> and then. What's her name, Lauren? No. I think her okay. name. This was a while ago, so I like like I think her name was something like Holly or something from like the forties oh. or something. You know, like like old old stuff. Um, and yeah, so like I, I feel like there's little tweaks. Like if you if you start by looking at things like that and realize that you're still just literally showing that no matter what's going on here, we are beholden to these people, then nothing's going to change until you realize that that's a problem. It's not even it's not even making a change. It's realizing that that's a change that needs to be made. Yeah. Um, so, we talked about a lot of things that yeah. are not really in a straight line, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> that's how these things tend to go. Um, but thanks for coming on to talk to me about all of the things that we did talk about. I am... Sure going to struggle to call to give this a succinct title but that's that's fine um and uh yeah it'll be up next week so um all right well thanks for talking to me and yeah thanks for inviting me it yeah. was really a nice conversation i really enjoyed it yeah well i'm glad you did because i did as well and i think the people listening will feel the same way next week i hope so all right all right so thanks yeah. All right. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye.